Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. If you're looking for the best acrylic, they make it. If you're looking for oils, they make Williamsburg oils. And watercolors, they make core watercolors. Mediums, textured gels, you name it. They make it, and they make it the best. All in upstate New York, an employee-owned company that's committed to stewardship in the community and artist assistance and education. You can find out more about Golden at goldenpaints.com. Tom Sachs is an artist who was born in New York City, grew up in Connecticut, and lives and works in New York City. Tom is at exhibitions at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas, the Noguchi Museum in Queens, the Brooklyn Museum, Speroni Westwater, Thaddeus Ropak in Paris, the Park Avenue Armory, Baldwin Gallery, Gagosian, Tomio Koyama in Tokyo, and many more. His work is in the collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Getty, LACMA, the Guggenheim, the Whitney Museum, the Yale University Art Gallery, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Albright Knox, and many more. He's also one-fourth of the collective Satan Ceramics with Mary Frey, Pat McCarthy, and J.J. Pete. I stopped by Tom's downtown Manhattan studio for a chat about music, craft, hand value, school uniforms, the importance of lighting, and more. Here's our conversation. Yeah, <laughs> why not? So I'm excited to talk to you. I I was thinking about today, the, I think it was the third, second or third time I was in Japan and I saw your show at Koyama. And I think that was in the early 2000s, right? Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you have a crisp memory? No. No? It's it's fleeting? No, it's just like memory is is subject to all the other things that happen. Yeah. You know, so... And it's selective and subjective. Well, do you so know? in which show? Two thousand is that? Was it Nazi or McDonald's? I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which so we is, did it. Yeah, it was a small space because mm-hmm. you know most of the spaces in Japan are kind of small. We're doing another one at his new gallery in uh, April. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's cool. So it's called Smut Show. Really? Yep. Is it? <laughs> this is the work related to the title. Yeah, but Smut. In the studio means Saks modularized utility tray, and uh, a Saks modularized utility tray. Oh, that's the notes. Is um, like eleven and a quarter inches by nine inches, and that's what uh, everything in the show will fit on this this tray. And the, and we use these trays um, in our tea ceremony in the Mizuya, the water room. Yeah, and. Um, everything sort of fits on these the way it would fit on like an an, an airplane service car or in the International Space Station. Yeah, nice. So, what? Well, not I'll get into that later, I guess. But why don't we go way? And also, also, smut show means porno movie in fifties parlance. Right. In a just in case in prior generations. <laughs> yeah, in case you didn't. No, right. No. Some people might have. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that is a dated term at this point. Yeah. You, now you have like. X tube or whatever. Right, a smut rag. <laughs> smut rag. Yeah, that's a that's. I think um, my dad had 
and they don't exist anymore. Just in case you're wondering, you cannot buy a current porno magazine. Really? They, they do not exist. You can only buy vintage. There oh, is not one, as far as I know. I went down to that bodega that's um, it's like a newsstand across from the prison on um, is it Center Street, oh, yeah, just down, down here. Yeah, yeah. And they used to have lots of porn, and they, they only, and I asked, because it's like lottery tickets and candy and porn, like stuff that you were going to get on your way in to visit your friend in jail. Right, right. And it was always like a porno magazine <laughs> vendor, and they, didn't, they only had one, and it was $20. And it wasn't a porno magazine. It was like sexually. Out of the cover, just had three big girls on the cover. Well, big. what do you bring besides a file and a cake? Oh, gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's yeah. outdated. Yeah. And you don't. I mean, inmates don't get service, right? <laughs> they don't get coverage in there. I don't know how it works. Yeah, it must be. It's different times. Yeah. So. Okay, let's go way far back. You grew up yeah. in the city. Well, no, you didn't grow up in the city, but you were born here, right? Yeah. And I, you, where'd you grow up? In Connecticut, like an hour and a half from here. How was that? <laughs> it was like a sub, it was like a suburban affluent um, uh, community. It was a bohemian community in in transformation, becoming an extremely affluent community. So when I moved there, it was like kind of cool alternative to New York City like that's where Ashford and Simpson and the Rolling Stones lived and there was a punk rock club and head shops and, and like hardware stores and stuff and um, but slowly it turned into McMansions and and uh, my parents still live there and there and when I look at the house on Google Earth it's the only one surrounded by trees because every other house is built to the limits of the lot oh yeah and max it out right and so if when when they sell their house it'll be just torn down and the next like largest allowable thing will be built there right so and then along with that was a loss of like so many other so many other small cities of 35,000 people like no hardware stores you know Home Depot is in the like less affluent town one town over um, but it's on the I-95 corridor, which stretches from like Maine to Florida, which has been like a major vector for everything from, you know, aerospace to drugs to sneakers. Yeah. Does that, I mean, growing up in that kind of neighborhood, did that result in a punk rock listening skateboarding youth in you? <laughs> or did you go a different route? Yeah, I was, I got lucky that I was exposed to um, that, that kind of, culture and yeah. like thrasher magazine was my radio station right. like so yeah. many others and there was a punk rock club in stanford called the anthrax that i got to go to a lot and everyone went through there because it was, it was on the way from new york to boston so people played the anthrax a lot and was that did that predate the band anthrax yeah yeah okay. oh yeah really, t- totally remember them <laughs> i did sort of I, I was like kind of like a like a Motley Crue kind of big stadium metal band. They were like, but they did the one of the first hip hop or rap like metal crossovers. Oh, that uh, song "I'm the Man" where they kind of rapped. Anyways, we should be playing it. <laughs> anyway, um, no, this was a place that was like it, ha- it had a you know the club was in the basement and the ground floor was an art gallery. And I have no idea what this was the first time I ever saw a punk rock art gallery. And I imagine it had things like Barbara Kruger in it, but yeah. I don't really know because right. I don't remember. But it was exciting. 
Is that where you're... Yeah, there was the first and only time I've ever been exposed to a grassroots art movement yeah. in my entire life. I still don't feel like I've ever been part of one, and I don't. if it was, I don't know what it would be called. But that scene was was a vibrant, historic, legendary thing that was available um, in, a, in a very special way because it was so close to where I live. Right. So did you like internalize that experience or that feeling, that energy, and compress it inside like a diamond? <laughs> well, I, th- I think it was, the, you know, it was the beginning of my art history. I mean, the, the, the Dead Kennedys really formed a lot of consumer culture critique stuff. Um, I, st- I still think those are, those are some of the best records. And I think a lot of it was really bad, but I think those guys really capture the American spirit of punk rock. Yeah. And, um, and of course, Bad Brains and Minor Threat and the Minutemen. Violent Femmes. Yeah. I, I mentioned them because I think yeah. I had Dead Kennedys on one side of a tape. Mm-hmm. And, and that the was, other yeah. side was the Violent Femmes. Yeah. yeah. They were great. Love that. So creativity for you, was it something that was always there? Did you, was it encouraged by that scene or teachers and arts, art class or were your parents creative? Like, where do you feel like it was born out of? You seem to have like a desire to make things. Yeah. <laughs> like explicitly um, making is a big part of, you know, your work. Yeah. So, um, Westport, the town that I grew up in yeah. was a, was a commuter town too. So there was a, on Metro North at Saugatuck station where, which was where my mom got up really early to drive my dad so he could make it to his job in Midtown by, mm-hmm. by 9am. So she could have the car all day. And there was, it was a real, a true bedroom community. A lot of people did that. And, um, and these sort of proto yuppie ambitious men um, left their families in, in Connecticut during the day and so weren't around to take care of like maintenance jobs. Yeah. And they were so overworked that they just didn't do them on the weekends. So there were these, the women really ran the construction projects. And so my mom and um, was always tinkering around the house fixing stuff and going to the Goodwill and buying furniture and stripping the paint off of it. And she hung out with a bunch of other really creative women. Um, one of them, Janet Horowitz, did an amazing um, series of children's books where there were like, it was a map and you'd drive your matchbox car around the page and turn the page and you could, it was like a different map. That's cool. And, um, and her other, other friend was this amazing woman who, raised chickens and brought the eggs to sell to the other women whether they were dropping their husbands off at the commuter station and she was also a caterer and she was she was the most ambitious and brilliant of all of these women and she um, later built a giant empire called Martha Stewart Living and she was a big leader in the community so it was really the women that showed me how to be creative and later when I was in um, prep school, there was a very strict dress code. You had to wear a blue blazer with a school tie and gray trousers and no sneakers. Did you love it or hate it? Or <laughs> or you could wear a suit. You're of your choice? 
and there were no restrictions to the suit, but suits were expensive. Right. So you get this blazer and the and the slacks. It was like really cheap, and that's what everyone had. But if you went to Goodwill with your own money, which I had from working at the burger at, at the uh, big top shoppy hamburger restaurant as mm-hmm. a tray cleaner and sweeper upper um, and um, chicken disemboweler, um, I had ex- um, disposable income. So for you could high get school. funky. So I bought <laughs> I bought. Um, polyester suits with really narrow lapels and narrow ties because it was kind of a mod look yeah and it worked with a kind of mod punk hardcore thing enough um hair that was long on top short on the sides what 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 age are we talking here um is this like middle school high school this is like high school high school yeah this is is like ninth grade 10th grade ninth ninth through 12 did people get it the mod look yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not everyone, right? But like, it was a definitely there was a there were very strong divisions uh, culturally in um, music, um, tribal music right. groups. Like yeah. you were into like uh, Grateful Dead was mm-hmm. one camp, classic rock was another, and then there were very very few people who were into um, alternative hardcore. Oh yeah, yeah. And then there were a few more people that were into alternative because there's a radio station um, from Long Island that we could get called. Well, it made it over the water. Yeah. Nice. And and they I can't remember the name of the record of the station. It was so good. Um, WLIR. And are we talking Smiths and the Cure and stuff? All like that, that shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no punk rock. It was all new right. wave stuff. But they would get. Um, crates of records every week flown in from London. Like oh, nice. The guy had a subscription and he found someone in London who would do that and that was what... And he just read the obituary in the New York Times like a year or two ago and yeah. it was fantastic. And so that... There were there were a lot... There was a whole section of like slightly older girls that were into that. Yeah. And gay guys that mm-hmm. were... In, or, or guys that would become gay later like you didn't really know or talk right. about. And so I think with those people the new wave look really worked. Yeah. And, but for me, it was more about like getting by because I didn't really feel comfortable in the suits. I mean, in the the uniform. Mm -hmm. And that was also, I figured out about like, um, you know, I always just want to wear sneakers because I was into soccer and we had these Adidas Sambas. And if you just painted the stripes out Mm -hmm. or took them off with a razor blade, they, you, they worked they worked enough that you might get a dirty look from your teachers but you wouldn't get a demerit right that's all that mattered like who cares what people think it's like you don't have to do time yeah (laughs) as long as they don't see those stripes yeah you're safe well as long as like the stripes you know are compliant yeah so that really helped me with like loophole philosophy Mm -hmm. and using creativity as a way of getting things done not creativity for its own sake yeah but creativity for sort of a purpose and that has always been something that i've been really careful with and that like i I don't really believe in in art for its own sake there's always got kind of got to be a utility behind it like um i don't know there's like a jihad and against utilitarianism in art like the highest level is like painting because there's no doesn't do anything it's just an object of contemplation that's why that stuff's more expensive versus a chair that's got utility but within that there's like a spirituality that sculpture sculpture can provide and and uh is that your kind of relationship to japanese art because like ceramics you know 
for the stuff you're doing in Satan Ceramics and like that stuff, a more utilitarian kind of aspect to making, which over there is really valued. And there's a real artistic sort of uh, craftsmanship and, and appreciation for that. The blending of utility and, you know, art sensibility. Yeah. I mean, is mm. that something that you're interested in? I think Japan's does it really well. Yeah. These guys really know what they're doing. Um, I think there are three reasons why people do things. Um, uh, you know, for, you know, one is for the, and we can pick the tea ceremony as an example. You know, they do things for spirituality, mm-hmm. which is like uh, Zen or something. And they do things for sensuality, which is the smell of um, the tatami mats or the taste of the matcha tea or the touch of a fabric or something. And then, the third reason people do things is for this stuff. Um, you know, the tea house, the kimono, the, the, the tea bowls themselves. And, you know, as a kind of a blue collar guy, I really into this stuff and making those things. And that's my pleasure is making things, but it doesn't mean shit without the spirituality, without the sensuality, those things are, are we're kind of lead it yet. Of course they all go together. Right. Well, when you, so when you graduated from school, you know, that creativity burgeoning. Did you think, oh, I want to go to art school, I want to be an artist, or what was your kind of path? I really wasn't into art. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was in high school. I was kind of a fuck-up, and I like was a bad, like a D-minus student and somehow managed to graduate. And <laughs> I love uh, D-minus. Just enough, not the fan. Yeah, always. <laughs> um, How did mom and dad feel about that? It was difficult. It was tough? They were a really... It was hard for them. Yeah, they really did their best, and they 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 really tried hard, and they got me into a special school and did all this stuff. But it was I was struggling. I hadn't found my calling. But so maybe I thought I would do like photography or psych or psychology or psychiatry or something because mm-hmm. um, I did a little photography in high school, and also all those all the um, shrinks they sent me to because of my problems in school were always yeah. the most interesting people in the community because we could like talk Get about deep. Yeah. Yeah. And then I took a, I tried to take a photography class, but everyone else wanted to do photography that year. So there was a lottery and I didn't win. So oh, I took didn't. a sculpture <laughs> class and I, within like a couple of weeks I knew I was going to do it for the rest of my life. Oh yeah. You yeah. caught the bug instantly. Yeah. It was like day one. It was very quick. Do you remember what those early projects were? Or the- yeah, I mean, I I went to I, like I was making like kind of Richard Serra sculptures, or I was making like uh, John Tingley sculptures. I was trying to, yeah. you know, Hans Belmer. Um, uh, uh, were you going real, to see was, art back then? I had a girlfriend who took me to New York and I saw art in that first semester, but yeah. I not I hadn't before then. It was just like all very quick and. But I also had, like I, I saw Jeff Koons for yeah. the first time, and, and that was happening, and John Kessler and Ashley Bickerton. Those are the those guys were not a lot older than me. I mean, you know, they were maybe le- like less than ten years older than me. Yeah, they, they were discovered very young. But that must have been exciting to see that work. You know. Yeah, that was very informative, and and that was kind of I feel like I still owe those guys all a lot. I mean, I found my own way of making it mine, but at least politically. And connecting it with consumer culture and things that are in stores as being as important as things in museums. Yeah. So, but once you caught the sculpture bug, you majored, I mean, was that your thing? 
yeah, I just did as little as I could in all my other classes and only did sculpture, but I wound up getting like the equivalent of A's in all my other classes because I was very focused and I used all my other classes to fuel my interest in art and wound up just bending whatever rules I needed to feed my interest in learning about the world and as it pertained to art. So, I mean, I would I don't think I got all straight A's. I think I did really badly in physics. Um, it was like hard for me to, um, I, I had a lot, a lot of like bad habits and learning disabilities or whatever the cliches of those from, I just, I was like, you know, I didn't, I couldn't really do the algebra. Yeah. I needed to do a lot of the physics stuff. Right. Um, it's a commitment. <laughs> you know, you, it is, it's a layered commitment of learning, I guess. It is. I mean, if, but if I could go back in time, I wish I had that because I do so much engineering now yeah. and I spend time with engineers, like good engineers, not douchebag engineers like most of them are, but like ones who are like committed to solving the problem. Right. And those guys use a lot of math and they crunch real numbers. Yeah. I didn't know if you like had that kind of propensity for mathematics and engineering because there is so much engineering going on. Yeah. I mean, I think, I like to quote Van Neistat quoting Albert Einstein, who says, I'm, I'm really good at math. I'm just bad at numbers. That's pretty good. <laughs> I had a friend growing up, and he's an artist, and he used to, I remember we skateboarded together and listened to punk rock and stuff, mm-hmm. and his bedroom was like, he would basically get things and just take everything apart, you know, like the clocks, radios, and all that stuff. And for some reason, I just imagined that was you as a child. Just tinkering and taking things apart and building them back together again. I love Take Apart Charlie, and I play Take Apart a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to see. I always do it where I love taking things apart, and I can't get them back together, and I break it. Yeah. Yeah. It's always like three screws. Yeah. (laughs) It's always three. Yeah. Or there's a moment when you're taking something apart, and something flies out of it, and you're like, shit, I'm never getting that back together. Yeah, there is that moment. (laughs) Where you go too far. Sprangity. What's it? Abe calls that like sprangity. Sprangity? Yeah. When it's <laughs> spring, like that, spring yeah. goes. Chris knows the term. Yeah. That's like the moment. Yeah. yeah. But then you're committed. Then you're committed to it being something else. Yeah. Which is, that's the breakthrough, right? I think that's so. Nice. There's like a freedom yeah. there yeah. once you hit that point. Yeah, because you know you're just never, that like IMAX never going back together. Yeah. Sprangity <laughs> equals freedom. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> also, when you start using. Like cutting tools and prying tools, you're never going back. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think I've ever been able to put anything back together, right? Ever. Right. And JJ's really good at it. He's patient, but I, I've never. You're probably pretty good at it. You, you make it. You do it. Yeah. Shoot Just video. like three screws missing. Oh, you do these, <laughs> but it still works. It works, yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like I mean, to be honest, the real kind of value of what you do is the hand in there, right? And a lot of the sculptures, I mean, if they were seamless, it just wouldn't have the same. Yeah, that's... The read. Yeah, that's... So, um, okay, so you moved to the city. What did you... You moved to L.A. for a little bit before? Yeah, after school, I went... I lived in L.A. for two years. And that was just working a job, kind of... Were you there for a reason or just to give it a shot? Uh, yeah, I had a job working for Frank Gehry. I made the chairs that we're sitting in right now. And, um, and then after that job ended, I wound up just like living there and making sculpture and uh, very, like no one saw any of it. I didn't, I had a couple of friends, but I wasn't able to connect with like the scene in LA. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, I moved to New York to do a little project for Frank, um, like a window display of his furniture. Um, it things started to happen pretty quickly here. Yeah, you did window. Did you do windows? Yeah. yeah, that's where I got my start in the mean streets of Midtown. And <laughs> yeah, which where did you work? I worked at Macy's. I know when I moved here, I was like, well, I didn't know what to do. It was pre-internet basically, and I was like, well, War. I'm from Pittsburgh, so I was like, Warhol did windows. Mm-hmm. Jasper Johns did windows. I should probably do windows. It wasn't that glamorous. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it. I, I, did, I loved it, but yeah. it was different than I expected. Yeah, I thought it was glamorous. It was fun. Um, but where did you do them? Barney's. Different scenes than Macy's. <laughs> yeah, but that was Barney's and 7th Avenue under Simon was definitely a major scene. Yeah. It was like a, and it was very connected with the art world. So like I think that that community was very supportive of what I was doing because I worked very hard and became a leader and helped make things happen very quickly. And I kind of model my studio a little bit on that team, which is bigger than our team, but, um, about the, you know, that's where I learned about the importance of, of making yourself indispensable. And that's something that I teach here in the studio and Aram and Charlie who are sitting here with us now, like embody that. In, in everything they do every day, including yeah. just sitting here with us. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's funny too. I guess, you know, those skills that you've learned doing that are important, both in fabrication. Did you learn things physically too about fabricating in windows? Cause it's a different kind of thing making stuff for windows. It's a yeah. sh- sort of no, a shallow I, tight space. And sure. I mean, I, I learned just about presentation and that how it looks is everything. Yeah. Deadlines, lighting. <laughs> deadlines, lighting. Yeah, it's really important. I got really good. At, I learned a lot about lighting. I mean, I feel like I took a graduate course in in theatrical lighting. Yeah, and and I don't know if you like looked around the studio, but like the lighting in here is very obsessed over. Right, and we really are good at it. It's important. Always, always, we're always really good at lighting. Yeah, and I hate doing it at gallery shows just because I'm so tired and it takes so much work and. And they're usually, rarely are the, are, the, are the lights good enough. Yeah. I know, I don't think they under, a lot of galleries understand the value of good lighting. I like those galleries where they just do fluorescent strips in the ceiling. Oh, yeah. And like lots of them. Those right. are my favorites because it's easier. It's like a white out. Yeah, I think that's good when, when they can do that or they've got natural light or something like that. Yeah. Nice. So um, in your studio, like what do you, as far as, I mean, you've been, showing and working for a long time and kind of what are you working on now? What's you, what are you most excited by? <laughs> a big question. Charlie, you want to answer the question? It's a lot. I mean, we have a lot of deadlines coming up, so I think there's a lot of work to be done, but the tea ceremony, adding all the things for that coming up in Japan. Is that different than the Noguchi one? Or is it a lot of the same work? Or I think the major elements are the same, but it's a site-specific installation, so we're always making new stuff. And it's not there's never a point to doing a show again just to tour it, just to reach a new audience. I mean, that's a good thing to do. Yeah. But life's kind of too short, so we're always trying to find ways of exploring new territory. And that's kind of our next meeting after this is about fig- is understanding how, how we're going to make the show different. And that's what's coming up today is making some hard decisions about what's in that show. 
Um, yeah, the Noguchi Museum is such a cool, unique space. So that show was really interesting, the way that you incorporated all that work into that. Yeah. It's, that like was, an, it's a strange space, but it's really beautiful. Yeah, that was great. And it's going to be tough to, to beat that. Yeah. So that's why we're st- sort of struggling, but it's a, it's a struggle that I, I, I welcome and enjoy. And that's all because of Dakin Hart, who is the uh, chief curator there. And he's even working, we're even working with him on making sure the show in Japan looks good. Yeah. And, and behind you, you'll even see there's a, a we made a, a scan Noguchi. of, of Noguchi's narrow gate from 1981 and we're wrapping it in cardboard. The, the, 1980, the one narrow gate from 1981 was made out of a piece of basalt that's like three and a half billion years old. Yeah. Weighs probably 20 tons. It weighs like, I think, two one and a half tons. Yeah. And, um, or one, t- anyway, it's stone and fragile and expensive. So we're making it in cardboard and then we'll cast that in bronze. Oh, nice. That's going to be heavy too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And will it, is it, it's going to have the hand in there, right? Or is it in a, totally. So it's not like the replica, but it's, no, you'll see the hot glue drips. Yeah. You'll see oh, that's cool. the cardboard. You'll see the corrugated edges. You will see that it's been made. Yeah. So, and one thing I didn't ask that I want to touch on is music. Is it something that's still really important to you? Like when you're working, do you listen to music or? Yeah, but fuck iTunes. Yeah. iTunes is really, (laughs) (laughs) has really made it difficult. Yeah. Um, Because my, you know, my art collection is my music collection. And I invested a lot of time in getting iTunes organized. And now I've no no fucking idea how it works. And I talked to someone the other day, that amazing woman, Egli from Chanel. And she was like, and she's like a real music head, way more than me, it seems like. She had like almost like something to prove about it. (laughs) But I believe her. I believe her. And I said, how do you organize? Because I always ask, by the way, how do you organize your music? My my music. Yeah, I well I've converted to Spotify. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we all did. Yeah, and I asked every I ask everyone because I want to know like someone's got to still be holding on. And she's like, yeah, I use iTunes. I'm like, how do you manage? She's like, well, I haven't updated in a decade. Well, that's one strategy. <laughs> I mean, does she have it on her phone? Or just when no. she's at home, she she uses like an old. Wow. When she had it. Can we jailbreak an old computer and? She could probably just eBay one. With like the old operating system and get like Can we get put an old operating system on a new computer so it's fast? I don't know. I don't think so. Unless there's the like the processor a, won't let you. Yeah, like you know, they have the thing where you can't go back in time. You can't go, you can't go down <laughs> the ladder, you can only go up the ladder. Yeah. But maybe reverse there's like compatibility. An yeah. Or something that's like what that. I'm talking that would about. Be the, that's the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still have one of those original iPods that's like a, they call it the brick, you know, the first generation. Does it have the rotating yeah. scroll thing? Clicks when you, yeah. It's like, does it actually move? Yeah, it moves. Whoa. And uh, I don't use it, but it's there. But that was a really great way to organize music. Yeah. But, I mean, speaking to your, you know, source who was shipping, or the, the radio source who was shipping records from London, and think about how different it is now, how accessible it is. Like music, I can hear... You know, I remember going through a, a stage of liking um, like high life music and not being able to find that much of yeah. it. Now it's like everything like yeah. instantly. Yeah. So I mean, there's pluses and minuses. I think it's a big minus for musicians because I know I the band I was in has a couple of records on Spotify and I've never seen a cent from them. 
<laughs> I don't even know where that, uh, not that it's making any money, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think musicians make any money off yeah, of that stuff. I don't care about that. that. Stuff. I just want, I just care about my, my music. What about the artists? <laughs> they can go perform the way musicians did for thousands of years right. up to 1915. Yeah. It's only from 1915 to 2008 or whatever. It's like not even a hundred years that that was an issue. Yeah, and now they can tour with a laptop anyway, so they don't even have to lug around yeah, equipment. Fuck them. <laughs> like, get a job, bitches. Let's <laughs> see. It's pretty good. Um, but do you listen to music when you work? Yeah. Do you guys? Yeah. Turn it up. Yeah. And What's the? Is it just random? Lots of different stuff. I feel like this week we only listened to Frank Ocean, but. Um, we listen to a lot of things. I think we're in the golden age of hip hop. I think this is a time that people will look back on and be like, fuck, it was, it was really, really good. good. Yeah. It's pretty creative right now, I feel like. It's great. It's incredible. It's a renaissance. It's like mega. It's epic. There's so much going on. And um, I can't even keep up with it all. It's, like it's something fun. new every day. It's funny because I've been listening, I've been on like a 90s early hip hop, you know, kick of. Tribe Called Quest and you know Jungle Brother like stuff like that and to me I guess generationally that was like the golden age yeah but I can definitely see it now how there's so much more creativity in it's it better I mean that's that was with that was the stuff that I grew up on too because that was like you know the bridge right like yeah Beastie Boys were a hardcore band like they played the Anthrax or you know Public Enemy was like the transition because they were so political. They almost had like a punk rock aesthetic. Takes a nation of millions. Yeah. Yeah. That was a perfect record. And, um, you know, a lot of those guys, Karis one, like it's a different, it's a different time. Yeah. And, but yeah, I love that. But it's just, it's just, it's just so much more sophisticated and beautiful, rich. Yeah. So rich. Yeah. And, one more thing too is um, the collaborations you've done with like you know getting the work out in different areas like with like you know clothing shoes other kind of avenues something yeah. that I've always been really interested in I mean is that something that you've kind of it comes from those early days of you know being around your mother's friends and seeing them kind of like all working on these different projects I love me some cottage industry yeah no doubt about that but um, I just and I, I was like my hobby yeah. is industrial design architecture so I do that just for fun um, but it's always something I wanted to do I was uh, something I thought I would do instead of sculpture I just kind of fell into sculpture and I, I think I'm much better at sculpture than architecture industrial design because it just takes me a long time to get it right so everything that we do that where we do in, in an industrial scale like a sneaker or piece of clothing or piece of furniture and stuff it just takes so many revisions it's just it just hurts it's hurts. exhausting it's, yeah. it's really yeah i think like, for artists that's one of the most exhausting things or if someone asks you to do something again it's like the a big fear like <laughs> having to do the same thing over again yeah that's rough it's kryptonite but, <laughs> but i think it's just hard to do anything really really well so you just got to make sure that whatever you do you love doing it because you're going to have to do it over and over again and you're right. going to have to do it really well so like for me, I love making sculpture and I, I like making furniture. It just, t- it just takes a lot. And so it's like, it's not really my main focus because it just takes so much time. Well, you've really found a way to, through your, the hand and the mm-hmm. creative hand in your work, 
been able to transmute that into like industrial or into whether it's fashion or, you know, other avenues, because, you know, if you were just doing that, people would say, this is too funky. It's not going to work. You know what I mean? But I think through what you've established as a creative artist, you've kind of been able to push that into those other areas, which I think other people really value, you know, those like the shoes that you made are really kind of like a funky twist. And I love the box and like the whole way it's made. It feels really handmade. But mm-hmm. if someone at Nike proposed that in general, I feel like it would have less of a chance to yeah. to fly. Well, it's built on the ideas of the sculpture. Yeah. So that's why it kind of works. Because there's a background. It's also it's like it's done right. You know, there's like, it's, we're very careful just to do as little as possible. Right. And then to, you know, avoid creativity at all costs. Yeah. So, um, where can people find your work other than your website? I wouldn't even go to my website anymore. I just go to Instagram. That's where you can learn what's like next coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And just at your name at Tom Sachs. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best. And the website's good. It's just, uh, do people even use websites no, anymore? Not at so all. It's like the idea of the website's not. <laughs> I think every artist I talk to at the end, they're like, "Yeah, I haven't updated my website in like five years." You just check out Instagram. Our website is amazing. Greg Passantino designed it over a decade ago, and it doesn't need updating. I, I looked totally at it the other robust. day. It holds up. Yeah, it's really good. It's, it was our second website, and I'm really happy about it. We talked about updating it, but then the 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 things that it would improve are so subtle and minor that. And also, I don't even know if websites matter. Well, here's the thing. When I look at a lot of websites now, it's just the template, the WordPress or the Squarespace template. Yeah, yeah. And your website doesn't feel that way. And it has the same hand that your work has in a way. Like it has really? a quirkiness that, you know, is in the sculptures, I think. Well, I'm part of a community of downtown visionaries and Greg's one of them. I mean, yeah. like Greg and van and casey and the safty brothers like and lena dunham like we're all in the same like rent from the same landlords so it's this kind of little pocket of um of work yeah it's a great space and i feel like these spaces are really not common anymore (laughs) or fading yeah you know i know we're in like new york's mini silicon alley (laughs) (laughs) holding on (laughs) while everything else just keeps building and progressing around it well thanks thanks thank you thanks for your question great interview thank Thank you you. sound and vision is recorded edited produced by myself Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can donate. You can pick up a tote bag. You can see images that I take when I visit the artist studios or the galleries. You can also leave a review on iTunes for the podcast. It really helps out. Thank you to Jacob2-2 for the intro-outro music and Michael Lovett for his introduction. Many thanks to Tom Sachs. Make sure you check out his upcoming shows and follow him on Instagram at Tom Sachs. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Sound with Vision Podcast. And you can check out more about my work at painchanger.com at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Thank you for listening.